Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast with Joe Lavelle and Dr. Glenn Winkle. On today's episode number 45, I am pleased to be joined by Samuel Salzer, the co-author of the book, Nudging in Practice, How to Make it Easy to Do the Right Thing. Samuel is also the co-founder of Habit Coach Professionals, which provides training and certification to help coaches guide their athletes toward adopting good habits using tools and insights from behavioral science. If you have ever wished for more willpower, or if you've ever wondered why you can't reliably make yourself do the things you want to do to improve your health, or stop yourself from doing the things you want to stop, then you should definitely listen in to hear Sam explain where habits come from, why it's so hard to break habits, and what can we do to get control over ourselves, get control over our behavior that has so much impact on our fitness, our health, our lives. All right, let's go talk to Sam. All right, well, Samuel, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thanks, Joe. Really happy to be here. Samuel, uh, let me start by just saying that the focus of the Wise Athletes Podcast is for older athletes and how they can improve athletic performance today and retain their athletic capability for a long time. There are so many aspects of this, of health, longevity, training, and performance that are impacted by our habits. I have long wondered about, and recently, as you know, I have been looking into this question of why old and bad habits are so hard to break and why habits that I wish I had are so hard to start, to make into habits. So I am very pleased to have you on this show. Before we dive into that discussion, though, I wonder if you could give our audience uh, a bit of your background here so that they understand who you are and how you know what you know. I understand that your purpose in life, I read this uh, on your website, is to make the world a better place, one good habit at a time. I love that. Would you tell us how you have become an expert in habit formation and habit change? Yeah, of course. And I'm looking forward to hopefully answering some of those questions you raised earlier on as well. Excellent. So I, in some ways, started maybe in an unusual way, you could say, from a standpoint of I never set out to become a habit expert or working with behavioral science. But I was studying economics and had a professor who I did research for who started to smuggle me books on behavioral economics. Huh. And so for me, that was really what started my journey down the rabbit hole, so to say, because I felt like I had seen the world in somewhat of a black and white before. And when studying behavioral science, I felt like I was given these new glasses that gave more nuance to the world, more color to the world that I was seeing. And that applied to both my own life, but also the life around me. And that was a long time ago, but that set me out to really understand how we make decisions and how we can change our lives in sustainable ways. And I would say what's been the fuel for me for a long time has been this idea that when I started to understand my own life and started to see how payroll science and habits and all of these things looked in, in the world that I was living in, it became natural for me to look at the people around me. And I noticed that it was not only me who struggled with certain things in life. Like there were certain things that I wanted to do, but also a lot of people in my life, they were really struggling. And some of them have been struggling for a long time. And I felt that it was such a hard thing to see when someone have a good intention. They want to do something good for themselves. They want to, let's say, start meditating because they have been struggling with managing stress or they've had some weight issues and they're wanting to kind of eat better or exercise more. Right. And so they had this really good intention. They want to do better. 
and they go to the world to get help, but then the world gives them a shitty solution. Huh. It's a quick crash diet, or it's a <laughs> pseudo-scientific uh, list of advice. And a lot of times that what I noticed was that was what my family members, friends, close ones were given. And so that's been the fuel for me, I guess, from the start is to find ways where we can make it easier for people to take these insights we have from behavioral science and put it to practice to actually use it because it's great if it's there in the research, but we obviously want to see it being used. And so that's been my thing uh, to cut the short here. I was going to say that I've done that in many ways. I've applied that in designing digital applications to scalable uh, solutions. So worked with millions of users for smoking interventions or for weight management interventions, but also focus a lot on how to focus on individuals. How can we support individuals to apply this in their own life and and coaches to help them as well. So that's been kind of the three things that I've been dedicating my life to. And so far, so far so good. It's been a really fun, fun experience so far. Excellent. And you didn't mention this program that you teach, which I am in the middle of taking so that I know that this habit change, habit making activity is a skill that is learnable and that people should not feel like this is this is just a problem of human nature and there's nothing they can do. If they really want to change themselves and make habits that are good for them, they can. But before we get into that, let's just walk through this thing. When I started a little over a year ago, the Wise Athletes podcast with Dr. Glenn Winkle, the purpose was to talk to experts to discover what would make a difference for the older athlete looking to improve performance and to extend the time in life that I could be a strong athlete. And I was happy for other people to follow me on this journey of discovery. My idea was, of course, that if only I knew what to do, that would be enough. But oh no, I was so wrong. So really, it turned out that there were three problems that had to be solved. The first one was figuring out what is true. Okay. But I quickly came to understand that there were just too many things that were true and relevant to my goals. And so I had to find a way to prioritize, to apply an 80-20 rule, to be sure to do the behaviors that would have the biggest effects for the smallest efforts. Because surely if I knew it would have the biggest payoff, I would do it, right? No. <laughs> the third and the hardest obstacle to overcome is that it is so hard to stick to a fitness plan that it approaches impossibility for nearly everyone to be completely consistent. And so, of course, everyone is laughing, just like you, because of course this is true. Who hasn't walked past a plate of brownies and been unable to resist? This is why the words willpower and free will even exist. But what I want to know, Samuel, is what is really happening here? What is underlying this human nature thing that everybody already knows about? What's the difference between what I want to do to have the life I want to live versus what I really want to do on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? Why do I have these two selves that contend for control of my behavior? I bet you could explain it to me. It's a great question. I would say one trend has been in lately in terms of looking at understanding human behavior is to point out irrational human behavior and seeing like, haha, look at when we're acting foolishly or when we're acting against our best interests. And I think what I want to say first is that the reason is because our body, our brain is extremely smart and efficient. It's evolved over millennia, millennia <laughs> or thousands of years at least to work in the context that we have found ourselves in. The tricky thing is that you haven't evolved much in the last 10,000 years. Mm. So in the last 10,000 years, for the most part, our brain, our body, 
there hasn't been much changes in, in how we're built and, and what we're given at when we're born. And obviously, we both know that looking out of our, first of all, we're recording via, you know, the magic of the internet and, right. and so on. There, there's a lot of things have changed. And so when we're looking at our body and the goal of our body and our brain, comparing it to what the context have changed to where we find ourselves in, what was very different before was that it was much more of these short-term motivations that really drove us to do things very naturally. Uh, food wasn't abundant, so we had to often struggle to find food. Uh, shelter wasn't abundant as well or easy to find. And um, we had to <laughs> be much more uh, thoughtful in how we, how we navigate that. And a lot of the positive, call it health benefits, at least in terms of being, you know, mobile and moving a lot came naturally because we were finding ourselves in an environment that forced that to happen. But through the innovation of the last hundreds and thousands of years, we found ourselves in a context where it's very different. We have an overabundance of food. We have overabundance of all things we would, for the most part, need. And especially if you're listening to this in the US or I'm based in Sweden, so it's the same here. And so it's a little bit tricky then for our body to make sense of these things. And we, we know from a biological level as well, where our body is smart. If we add something to our body that we naturally produce, our body stops producing it. So if we add certain things, we inject things in our body, um, that leads our body to stop naturally producing those things. So it's always <laughs> thinking about how to be as efficient as possible. And so when thinking about the purpose of the brain and the body, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a great neuroscientist, and psychologist has a great metaphor for describing what really the job is, and that's to budget. It's to be as efficient as possible with the resources we have. And the brain main job is not to think, <laughs> it's not to be consciously aware, it's to budget. It's to budget our resources and our, our kind of cognitive capacity and our bodily functions as best as possible. So I think that helps to set the scene. That helps to set the scene that one important thing is that our body is smart and efficient, and our body tries to make the best of the situation to not use unnecessary energy or resources. But at the same time, our context has changed a lot. And I think those two things in, in, in unison make for this challenge we find ourselves in where we have a little bit more of a, maybe <laughs> for, for, for good or bad, uh, it, it's, it does come as naturally for us to move. And, and we have to be a little more thoughtful when it comes to then designing in a context that supports us in, in moving and in doing the things we want to do. So does that help to start setting the scene? I can dig into some more of these things, but maybe, maybe that's a start. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess the topic really goes quite deep and we only have a little bit of time together. So we'll, we'll need to sure. simplify to get to the main points here, which is what can we do? Mm-hmm. And I happen to know now because I've been reading the books that have been coming out. There's been lots of uh, books coming out here lately. This whole idea of habits is is a big topic right now. And as I mentioned, taking your course, which is a certification course for teaching people how to help other people in changing habits. So, so there are things that we can do. I guess maybe the thing to make clear first, and tell me if I'm wrong here, is that, you know, for whatever reason, ourselves, our bodies and our minds all as a thing are complicated and 
we have thoughts and emotions and even behaviors that are, I'll use the word reflexive. They just, they just happen without any effort, without any thought of effort, I mean, uh, without having to think about it. And, and maybe it starts at the level of, I don't have to think about breathing. My body just does it. And I can consciously change my breathing and decide to breathe faster or slower for a while. But as soon as my mind goes on to something else, you know, I just go back to breathing at some rate. Probably it's the rate that I need for whatever level of exertion that I'm, I'm putting out. But it goes up to other things too, like when I walk by the table that has a plate of brownies and a plate of carrots, I want the brownie. Without any thinking about it, that's the one I want. I mean, really, that's the one. I, I mean, that's the one I'm going to grab. Unless my conscious self gets control and says, wait, 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 you can't eat that? Are you? are you crazy? That is totally not in the budget. That is not in the diet that we're supposed to be eating. If you eat that, then all of those calories, now I'm now you got to skip dinner. You're really going to hate that, skipping dinner. There's this little voice in my mind that says, eat it. eat it. Don't worry about the dinner. Yeah, okay, sure, we'll skip dinner. <laughs> I have to fight myself. So there's this reflexive set of behaviors, mm. and there's these deliberate set of behaviors, and it's this battle that happens all the time. It's not like some days, it's a all the time thing. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, and I would say, I would add that it's not a fair battle because a good metaphor for thinking about these two selves that we have is we can think about them as being an elephant and the rider of the elephant. So you mentioned this more reflective uh, or this more automatic self or habit self. That's the elephant. That's the that's the a really powerful uh, force of nature. Um, but then at the top of the elephant, the big bay elephant sets this small rider trying to <laughs> direct the elephant in some way. And a lot of times it can work. You know, it can direct the elephant to the suitable destinations. But as you mentioned, you know, you, you're saying that I'm going to have it. I'm going to eat it because it's there. And and that's the thing where. We're automatically wired to do so many things. We can get into some of the details with habits and so on, how they work. But the elephant is, is the one in charge. And if it really wants to do something, the rider doesn't really have much to say. And so that comes in a little bit to what I mentioned before about the importance of the, the environment the elephant is in, the context that the elephant, elephant is in. Because you're going to give, if you're going to give the elephant a lot of these random treats that's going to be showing up along the way, well, guess what? It's going to probably go for them and eat them. Right, right. <laughs> The more you know about the elephant and what modifies its behavior, you know, like in the movies, it would be the mouse running across the floor and the <laughs> elephant is afraid. Or as you said, the, you know, the, the snack and you don't want the elephant to eat the snacks, but if the elephant walks by the snack, it's going to eat it. And the, the writer has, can do very little to stop it. But the point was that the better the rider can control the environment and understand what affects the elephant's behavior, the better the rider will be in being in control. Yeah. But that's a great point that it's not a fair fight. Yeah, I love that. But there is a way to win. It is a skill. Let's put aside the fact that it's not a fair fight for a second here. And let's just say that, think of it like a scale, like the scales of justice. And I've got reflexive on one side and deliberate on the other. And from a moment to moment basis, whatever one is stronger, that's the one that controls the behavior. I'm going to eat the brownie now. I'm going to eat the carrot now to make the point. 
So whichever one is stronger on a moment-to-moment basis wins. What that says to me is that there's two things you can do, categories of things you can do. One is you can weaken the reflexive side somehow, you know, like don't have the plate of brownies sitting on the table that you walk by or putting your gym bag in your car so that it's easy to stop at the gym on the way home. And I don't have to come all the way home and let my brain say, I'll just sit on the couch. Or I can strengthen the deliberate side, like publicly announce my intention to do something that really puts the pressure on for me to actually do it. So again, weaken the reflexive and strengthen the deliberate side. So there's got to be sets of things to do in each of those categories. But the ultimate thing to do would be to turn the deliberate behavior into a habit to replace the reflexive habit. And so now I win the battle by stopping the battle. I just automatically do what I really want to do. I The thing that would make me a better athlete, that would help my longevity, that would help my health. So I'm assuming and I happen to know, that there are some things that we can do for all three of those categories of things. I mean, is that true? How do you think about this? Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of things we can do. I I think it works as a way of looking at it. In general, I like to simplify it as that we have, often we can divide our ability or thinking about these things in terms of our external ability, in terms of how our environment, and that includes both the built environment, but also the social environment, helps us achieve our goals. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, we have certain ability to, to change how we, how we think or how we have more in, intrinsic ways of, of uh, changing ourselves in ways that can, can help us. Okay. But certainly, I think the promise of habits, why habits become such a popular term in the last three decades, is the promise that it's going to make the things we struggle with become automatic. And it's certainly possible, but I would say so far, maybe people have been giving a little bit overly simplified version of what that means and haven't really understand what habit is maybe as much as, I don't know if you agree having taken the course, but the, the idea is to give a little more nuance to thinking about how, how this interplay works, how we how we go from having something that's either a bad habit that we want to kind of break or this thing that we struggle with doing and then making it more habitual and more automatic over time. Yeah, That's a little bit of a journey that has some aspects to it. But we can certainly go through some of those like key things that are really important to think about when we build habits. Yeah, why don't you start by, tell us what makes up a habit. What are the elements of it? And then maybe we can go through and talk about how to use what we now know to help us in weakening certain things or strengthening things or even turning our bad habits into good habits. Yeah, for sure. So first of all, we have to remember that habit definition, it's an automatic response. It's something that we do without thinking about it. And we do it, it's almost like a prediction because how it works is that it's based on the context we're in. So a good example is that when we go into the kitchen in the morning, we probably have different habits than when we go into the kitchen at lunch or in the evening. So the context is very important in shaping the behaviors we do. Okay. And we can think about the context and what activates the habits in two ways. So both 
externally, the things we see. So it can be everything from, you know, everything we smell here, um, can be also the time, anything externally activating the habit or the behavior. The trigger for the habit could be mm -hmm. all kinds of things. It could be outside of us or inside of us. Exactly. And the inside of us is arguably the more powerful. And that's why it can be hard to break bad habits, because even though we change things, we remove the snacks, we make changes in our environment, the craving still is there. And if yeah. we don't manage the craving, it's going to be very hard for us to really overcome that bad habit. So activators or triggers are really, really valuable to consider. And to what you mentioned as well there with the internal ones, I would say that's where people maybe overlook the most of those two. So I think... Well, okay, actually, I take that back. <laughs> people overlook both of them really uh, significantly. So yeah. I was just going to say, because research shows that people have this false sense that the environment have less of an effect of them than they think. Yeah. So they, they think that just because I have certain things on the kitchen table doesn't mean that I have to do them, you know? I have free will. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we do, uh, to a certain degree, depending on how you define it. But it's, it's less than you think in terms of you definitely dramatically worsen your chances of not eating candy if you have candy next to you. Sure. Uh, or if you have it at the dinner table and, and so on, or next to it. And so that's one thing. We, we definitely have an overconfidence in our ability to have willpower in our environment. Uh, but also, secondly, we overlook these internal triggers and we forget them. And we think that maybe they, they often, the tricky thing is we might not even notice them because they... They can go so quickly from being something internal, like a state that we feel, to something we do, that we don't even acknowledge them. Uh. So a lot of people might not even, if you talk to a smoker, I've talked to a lot of smokers, it's not often that they actually feel the craving. They just notice they have a cigarette in the hand and realize that <laughs> the craving has led to them smoking. And so it's only if they don't have the access to a cigarette, they have to look for the cigarette, they have to buy a cigarette, that's where the craving is noticed. And so... What we have to do often, especially when breaking bad habits, is becoming, sadly, for some people, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but we have to become familiar with these internal uh, emotional responses and cravings and so on. Yeah. And what's really important is that we can boost our confidence. You mentioned confidence being important. We can boost our confidence when we notice that these cravings have less of a power of us on us than we actually maybe first think. So for most people have really long-lasting bad habits. Just the thought and idea of not succumbing to craving is equal to kind of head exploding or like a very bad outcome happening. Yeah. Again, going back to smokers or people with a lot of eating-related uh, behavior, it can often feel like the world is going to end if they don't engage with this behavior. But as we cover a little bit, as maybe you've, I don't, I'm not sure exactly if you've, you've come to this yet in the, in the course, but we talk about this idea of urge surfing. It comes from sure. acceptance and commitment therapy when it looks at how we can deal with these internal emotions and, and feelings where what can be really powerful for a lot of people is actually having more of a mindful experience where they notice the craving come, they accept that the craving is there, they don't do the behavior, and like riding a wave, they kind of surf that craving. And realizing that it's not constant. It's going to a peak and then, like a wave, it subsides. Yeah. And that can be one of the most impactful things for people stopping bad habits. It's proving to themselves that they're not slaves to their cravings. That they actually have that. We talked about the writer or the, or the yeah. conscious person. Yeah. We actually can, through certain deliberate practices, manage them. Yeah. 
I have encountered that in the course, and I have done that actually. And I'll say for the first time in my life, which has not been a short amount of time. Of course, I've been, like anybody else, been battling with myself my whole life. And it always does feel like, always has felt like it was a yes or no, either or moment that built up to a, I can't stop myself. I have to do this. But as a part of going through the course, I was trying to follow these instructions to help me in doing my fasting that I have as a part of my uh, routine. And as I got hungrier, I would get more agitated. You know, my adrenaline would be up and, and it would just get to where I just couldn't stand it anymore. And of course, then I would, I would go eat. You know, this is a common experience for a lot of people, I'm sure. But this idea of urge surfing, what I did for the first time in my life was to not feel like I had to make a decision, hmm. but rather just feel like I didn't have to make a decision. I just had to experience this feeling. And it wasn't about, oh, go for a walk or distract myself so that the feeling didn't feel as bad or I might forget about it. It was just feel the feeling. And when I did that, it became kind of like a, an experiment on myself, to, you know, a mental a thought experiment. And so I was able to kind of detach from it. It was very interesting in that as I felt these terrible feelings and realized that it was just a feeling, it kind of just went away. It just was like, huh, that's just a, a sensation in my body. It wasn't like I was confused and thought, well, if I don't actually eat now, I'm going to die. I, I knew that that was not true, right. but it just felt really bad. But just that idea of just letting that feeling, just living with that feeling and thinking about that feeling was a really powerful way of me being in control. Yeah, I love that. That's that's great to hear. And um, I would say that, you know, honestly, when we talk about this in general terms, not only habits, but in behavior change terms, what often is the case that people struggle with the most is managing these negative internal states. It's, it's, it's a way of thinking about it where... When we think about we struggle with being productive, we struggle with X, Y, and C, often what happens is that there is some form of internal negative states. It can be hunger, craving, but it can also be boredom. It can be worrisome. It can be overwhelm. And instead of being more aware of that and kind of listening into that feeling and noticing it, we want to avoid it because it's uncomfortable. Who wants to you know, put themselves in a state where they feel bad? And so that's why it's so tricky if we don't address these things it's going to be hard to solve some of the meaningful or build some meaningful progress because <laughs> they're just going to, like we, we make it really hard. For example, a lot of people these days don't want to use social media as much as they do. Yeah, They feel like they're using too much social media. Right. So we could, for example, lock away the phone. We could uh, do a lot of things that makes it impossible to use social media. But the reason why we use it is for the most part, a way to escape some negative feeling. We feel bored, we feel lonely, we feel stressed, we feel whatever negative thing is, and then social media is the escape. Right. But if we don't deal with these internal states and becoming more aware of them, that just means that we're going to do something else to solve for it instead. We're going to go to a you know, binge eat instead, or we're going to you know, watch a Netflix show, or we're going to, you know, we're going to find other ways to, to, to kind of distract ourselves from these negative states if we don't actually surf these waves a little bit more and, and become more... Sometimes it doesn't have to be exactly, you know, just focused on surfing the way, but also just being more aware of what actually is the problem. What is actually that I'm escaping here and what is actually the underlying negative state that I'm trying to avoid. That makes great sense. Yeah. I feel like 
we stopped at the first part of habits here, <laughs> but I feel like it's really good that we stopped here in some ways and spent some more time because it's such an important thing and, and often overlooked. So I'm happy that we spent some time on this. Yeah. I think we have to keep touching base with what's true because it just won't feel like it to people is that this is a skill. Yes. It's like learning to juggle. Nobody is born knowing how to juggle. And, and when you see somebody juggling, you think, oh, that person is different. And they just, they <laughs> have that weird ability, but I could never have it. But that's false. Everyone could learn to juggle if they just put their mind to it and they practiced and they, they, they learned what to do. And then they practiced the skill. They could learn how to juggle. And that's the same with managing habits. It's a skill. It's a complicated skill. It's more complicated than juggling. And but yet it works the same. You have to understand it and then you have to practice it and then you'll get good at it. And so there's, it's a process. And so while there are things that we can do like hiding our phone so that we don't get on social media or you use apps that sort of lock us out and we can't do it, that might be a fine thing to do in the beginning as we go through this process of trying to get better and better, but that's not the end goal. The goal is to understand what's really happening and resolve those issues so that we are in the end, and maybe we never quite get there all together, but in the end, we no longer have this battle with ourselves all day, every day. It becomes where our two selves are essentially the same. The things that we want to do for our health and our and whatever else in our lives, our relationships, our livelihoods, whatever, the things that we know that we must do and we really want to do cognitively, consciously, to get the life we want become our habits. And we do it without thinking or trying or fighting against something else. So we talked a little bit about triggers and habits. There's more to it, I'll bet. Yeah, so we have, and to summarize, because I think it's useful to summarize, First of all, it's really important to think about triggers and thinking about both in terms of adding good reminders for the things we want to do and removing things that might trigger us to do the things we don't want to do. So removing the candy from the table, putting apples there instead. That's a good example of that. Yeah. So that's dealing with the environment, how we can activate that in the environment. And then we mentioned this idea of uh, becoming more curious about our internal states and what maybe internally activates our behavior. So that's the first part, uh, trigger. Then we have doing the behavior itself. And so when it comes to do behavioral, I think about it in kind of the other side of the coin, which is the ability to do the behavior. So whatever behavior we want to do, whether that's going for a walk or eating a healthy lunch or you know anything, we can always think about how able are we in doing this thing. And again, here we can think about it in, in somewhat similar distinctions. So we can think about how easy does my environment make this to be? <laughs> so uh, how much of a, uh, is it, does it feel like swimming downstream doing this thing in my environment? Is the environment kind of like acting as the downstream that you just kind of where I can pedal along uh, easily? Or do I have an environment where doing this thing is really hard? Yeah. So uh, two examples will be going to the gym that's far away versus having a gym that very close by, for example. And just that difference, we know from research that <laughs> if we have a McDonald's close to where we live, we're more likely to eat McDonald's. Mm. 
But if we have a gym close where we live, we're more likely to work out as well. So here we can think about at the first part of the environment. So we can think about, we should really think about ways where we can make our environment so that we move things closer to us that we want to do. So remove friction in so many ways we can, but also just move it closer to us. So where we can have the gym closer, the, the food closer, whatever it is that we want to do for it to be like distantly in any way easier for us to, to reach or to use. And then opposite, the thing we don't want to do, the things we, sh- we, we, we don't want to do, we should add distance to that. We should put it as far away as possible. We should uh, ask McDonald's to relocate. We should uh, <laughs> throw away all of the snacks from our cupboards. And, and so that it becomes harder for us to, to do the behavior. Yeah. And I think that's just doing that thing. Just doing that thing can make for a big difference. Because then all of a sudden, again, we're not asking as much of the elephant. We're not asking as much of it because it's all, almost like we can think about it as we think about the path we take on a daily basis. If we just make that path go through the things we want to do, it's obviously much easier than if you try to kind of force the elephant to go on these detours into the jungle and take these long journeys to other places. It's going to be harder. Yeah. So does this resonate with you? Is there anything here that you want to dig into a little bit more? No, no. This is right on path here. If we wanted to make it a little more tangible to the audience, then maybe rather than a guy riding an elephant, we could talk about a person trying to have a healthier diet. You know, like for me, I've got voices in my head that are reminding me about all of the yummy things that I could eat all day long. And when those yummy things are at the store, I'm very unlikely to get in the car and go get it. But when it's sitting here on the desk with me, oh, that's going to be really hard. I'm going to have to resist that 300 times an hour all day long. So, you know, this idea of moving things away, that makes perfectly good sense. But please continue. Yeah. So that's great. That's a great way of uh, making it clearer. Another dimension of making the behavior easier is obviously making the behavior easier. <laughs> so thinking about how we can adjust the difficulty of behavior in a way where it feels easier for us, for example. And so a very common challenge for most people is the idea of how do I you know, get to my ideal version of myself today as soon as possible. And often that leads to people setting way too high goals for a lot of the things they do. Mm. And so a good example, actually, <laughs> my first coaching client uh, back in the day was my mom. <laughs> right. I remember this. And uh, she was wanting to meditate more and doing some very be- basic kind of assessment of why hasn't been working for her. In her mind, meditation needed to take about 45 minutes. So she had to sit down for about 45 minutes in the morning to get a proper meditation going. And she had meditated for about once or twice a month for the last three months at the time. But then one of the main things we did was just to see, okay, well, what is the minimum viable dose of this meditation thing you wanted to do? Like, what is something that you still get some value from it, but it's as easy as possible? And so we said, well, even five minutes, I can actually get a lot of value from it, uh, she thought. And so let's just make it five minutes. And <laughs> what I would say is that that was probably one of the main, main things that led her to quickly build like a 100-day meditation habit going, was just changing a little bit of expectations, what is the minimum viable activity. Yeah. Because especially, we might get to this uh, as we go along further now, but when we think about this, our goal is often on the outcome. We want to lose as much weight as possible. We want to uh, become as quick as possible, break our personal record of certain things. 
Uh, so it's easy to want to do too much right now. But if we change our goal and really focus on the goal of building habits, then we should really more focus on that behavior that's easy to do, that we can, even on a bad day, even on the day where the kids are screaming or uh, the work is intense, we can still do it. Because that means that we can repeat that behavior every day over and over again. <laughs> and then it's going to become more likely to be a habit. And then once it becomes more habitual, once it becomes more automatic with repetition, we can then scale it up. We can then intensify it more and more and more. But often way we try to do the other way around. We put the highest intensity from the start and then we're kind of like feeling disappointed after one or two weeks where we couldn't sustain it. So that's another recommendation is to kind of switch, switch around a little bit, <laughs> right. work towards intensity, right. but start focusing the goal being the behavior, being the habit. Yeah. And that's the only goal, just getting those repetitions in. Well, that makes great sense. Everyone would just instinctively know how absurd it is to think that I am going to overcome whatever fitness or health issues I've got that I built up over the last 40 years, and I'm going to do it in two weeks. Right. No, you're not going to do that. You can't do that. And if that's your goal, then you're going to be disappointed. And if you're disappointed, now you're less likely to keep going because you didn't get this reinforcement of the goodness of that decision in the first place. We haven't really dabbled in this business of what is happening, this business of feeling good or being motivated to do something. Where does that come from? What, what does that even mean? But let's just say that that feeling of reward, of wanting a reward and getting a reward are important. And so if you set a goal and fail to hit it, that's bad for your ability to keep going in this direction. So you're saying set good goals, focus on getting better, not getting perfect and establish a routine of behavior, a habit of behavior, which you can then again, over time, make better and better. Maybe the goal is to be perfect someday, but that's not what's important. What's important is getting better. 100%. And I think you, you raised something really important there, which is that we obviously love you know, going all out, pushing ourselves, that can be very rewarding. That can be very, very fun. But like you say, one of the biggest, biggest obstacles when it comes to long sustained behavior change is failure states or failure, like where we have a goal that we don't reach. And it creates a lot of these negative, again, going back to emotional things. I haven't met many people who really are good at managing their perceived failures where they set a goal and they reach short of it. Yeah. And that can be the most common excuse often for, you know, giving up and, and stop pursuing a goal. And so when we sh shift the mindset a little bit, focus on just repeating this behavior until it becomes a habit. And so we put the outcome aside for a little bit. We, we know we're going in the right direction <laughs> and we're just focusing, okay, even if I just do this meditation for five minutes or three minutes, that means I've made a deposit into the habit bank. Mm. And then I'm going to benefit for that in the long run. What's really motivating is momentum and feeling like we have done what we've kind of set out to do. And so <laughs> it's, it seems obvious when you say it, but when we set this real high goal of, let's say, meditating for 60 minutes, we are very likely to miss that goal. And that's going to be not very motivating. But conversely, there's nothing that says to us that we can't meditate for a couple of more minutes if we set a goal of meditating for three minutes. Yeah. And imagine how that would be perceived for us. That would be perceived as like, we have overcome even our goal. We have actually over delivered. And 
that's something I see over and over again with people that are really good at building, you know, these long sustaining habits is that they, they start small, uh, but in a way where it's still a little bit challenging, but like it shouldn't be just meditate for 10 seconds, you know, meditate for a couple of minutes. And then if you have more time and it feels right, you know, feel free to sit a little bit more, but that's going to be so much more rewarding then because you're going to look back and you're going to say, wait, this week I set out to meditate for three minutes every day, but Look, on Thursday, I actually meditate for 30 minutes. I, I, just, I just, just enjoyed it so much that I just sit there for 30 minutes. And for the, mo- like, for the most important aspect of it, I've meditated every day this week. That feels so good. Rather than saying that, oh, I had this goal. I was going to meditate for 60 minutes every day. And I did meditate it, but only for one day. That's going to feel much, much worse. Uh, and it's not going to give you much depositing that habit bank <laughs> as well. Yeah. So there's so many good reasons for it starting a little bit smaller and just building momentum. Right. You mentioned the example of the smoker who doesn't actually recognize the urge to smoke. They just recognize that there's a cigarette in their hand now that they're lighting and it happened without even thinking. They just did that. And I don't know whether it's fair or not, but I'm sure that that it's true that people who they're trying to do some change in their life that would be good for their health and their fitness and they're failing at it, they quit trying without thinking about quitting. They just are no longer trying, like the smoker who didn't actually feel the urge to smoke. It's the, the normal person who doesn't feel the urge to quit. They just That just happened. And someday they go, oh, you know, I used to try to meditate in the morning, and I, I guess I quit doing that. Um, I never decided to stop doing it. It just stopped at some point. So, uh, yeah, all, all the more reason that consistency is the key. Repeating the behavior and feeling a pleasure from it, whether the pleasure is in the result of the behavior or just in the pleasure of having done what you set out to do, that you're doing something for yourself. Feel good about that. But you have to feel good. You have to f- consciously make yourself feel good in order to make this connection between this behavior and the feeling of good in order for that habit to become cemented into place. Is that right? So well said. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. We have talked about the importance of triggers, both the, the ones in our environment and the ones inside of us. We have also talked about the idea that when it comes to doing the behavior, the ability of doing it comes also from this combination of the environments we set out. If we have this feeling of swimming upstream or downstream, and also how difficult we make the behavior. And often if we make the behavior easier to do, that leads to the third one, which we kind of led into now, which we've talked about just that for it to become a habit, we have to feel this kind of rewarding experience relating to the behavior. Okay. And, and you put it into really great terms where it comes to it. Obviously, in the best of worlds, it's great if we can have the behavior feeling enjoyable and exciting and fun. But... You know, in the real world, there are certain things that we might not always find as fun and as enjoyable in itself. But as you mentioned, it can be rewarding in the sense that we have done something in kind of supporting our best selves and and our best uh, goals. And we've again talked about like we have made a deposit into that habit bank. We have made a repetition because the fourth step there. So trigger, ability, a rewarding experience is the first three. The fourth is just pretty much how we can support ourselves to sustain and repeat these cycles. Uh-huh. So how we can find certain ways to, over time, make it so that these repetitions happen. Because what happens in the brain is that every time we repeat the action in the same time and place, 
Uh, and often if it then obviously feels good or we have some form of positive experience with it, that becomes in a very real sense, this uh, strengthening of our neural circuits that uh, there's a classical saying within neuroscience, which is neurons that fire together, wires together. Yeah. And that's what leads to habits happening in that when we repeat a behavior in the same time and place, and we have these repetitions over and over again, yeah. those neural connections become stronger and stronger and stronger, and that makes it more and more automatic. And so uh, one thing we can do, for example, when thinking about how we can support repetitions is to think about what makes us, again, thinking about what makes us maybe fall off the wagon. So one of my favorite, favorite things to do is to start what I call an if-then plan. Yeah. So thinking about what are common reasons why I might fail to do what I set out to do. So going back to, let's say, eating healthy lunch, what are the things that usually trip me up? Well, maybe it's if I have a bad breakfast, I feel more craving during lunchtime, for example, or when I go and eat with colleagues at a restaurant, then that usually trips me up. And so we think about these tricky scenarios where we might be more likely to fail. And then we create the second column <laughs> where it's that if this happened, if I have a bad breakfast, then I have a way to solve for that. And we kind of create a plan to avoid the likelihood of us succumbing and failing here. So that could be, you know, having an extra snack that's a healthy snack in our drawer at our desk to be that we eat a little bit before lunch so we don't feel the same craving leading into lunch. Uh -huh. um, when it goes to going out with friends and or colleagues to eat for, for lunch at a restaurant, Maybe we, we have a pact with a colleague that, that if we go to a restaurant, you know, James or Katie, order for me. <laughs> hmm. uh, so it could be some of those things. And then what the bonus value of this, especially if you do this over time, is that you can then notice when you fall off the wagon, when you fail to do what you plan to do, you don't have to feel as bad for that because you can see it as a data point that you can be like, huh, another item on my if-then plan. And now I'm going to find a creative solution for how to solve this next time so I can overcome it and don't fall prey to this, this, this thing that happened today. Right. So that's one strategy we can do to just make it a little more likely that we kind of go back to that cycle and repeating that trigger action and, and then reward. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, 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 in fact, just coincidentally, just read about a study that was a, a weight loss study that had two groups of people one group talked about positive mental attitude and saying positive things, how they're positively going to be able to do this. And the other group talked about what might go wrong. They talked about negative thinking. What are the reasons? If I, if I fail, what, why would, would I have failed? And of course, people who believe in positive mental thinking would say, oh, well, the positive people will do better. It turned out to be completely the opposite. It was the people who had anticipated the failures. They not only had plans that they could deal with, like you said, if this happens, I'll do that to be able to overcome. But it also set them up to understand that, yeah, there might be things it, that could happen that don't have to do with this not being a good idea. So they would have more resilience to failures Whereas the person who never thought about failing, when they did fail, it would shut them down. They'd be like, oh, I can't do this. Yeah, that's spot on. I think that can be such a powerful thing. And if I can have one more strategy here that I think is a little bit fun one as well to mention is 
the idea of commitment devices. So commitment devices, I think, is most famously uh, talked about in, in the Odyssey, where Odysseus wants to hear the siren song, but yeah. knows that the song leads everyone to hear it to jump overboard. And so he asks his uh, mates on the ship to tie him up on the mast so that he right. can't move. And he tells them, whatever I tell you, never, don't, don't take me down from here. And so that's a little bit of a Greek version or Greek methodological version of a commitment device. But I would say that that's one of the more underrated things where what the commitment device does is that it, uh, we make a decision today that adds a little more cost or difficulty of doing the undecided behavior in the future. So I actually, I can link to this in the, in the show notes, or I can send sure. you the link. Um, because it can be a little bit hard to sometimes think about these things. So I created a database of about at least 50 of some of these things, depending on what your goals are. You can kind of sort based cool. on what your goals are. But let's say you wanted to re reduce snacking in the evening. Uh, one thing is to you know brush your teeth after dinner huh. because that's going to make a, <laughs> a cost in enjoyment of popcorn afterwards because the popcorn is not going to taste as good. <laughs> it's going to be much more like uh, enjoyable to eat popcorn with a you know, toothpaste uh, still flavored in your mouth, for example. Right. Plus you wouldn't want to, then you'd be thinking, oh, now I got to brush my teeth again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Great, great point. hundred uh, percent. And uh, another thing is a more extreme version. If we think about, that's a little bit simple. Extreme is getting a dog. I would say when I look out my window at 6am here at the streets below me, I only see one type of people and that's people with dogs for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> Because they have made a commitment to this living animal, a living being that, you know, if they don't take them out for a walk, they're, you know, in some ways punishing them. They're kind of, you know, not giving them the thing they need. Right. And so that's a more of an extreme version of a commitment device. Uh, and that maybe you can have as accountability coaches, another version of a more of a extreme thing. But what I'm doing right now as commitment device, actually, is that I noticed that I struggle with eating healthy dinners. And it's been because I've had a little more basic period in my work and I haven't been able to eat together with my family. And so I kind of get dinner maybe an hour after they have already eaten. And then I feel very tempted to <laughs> eat something else rather than cook something up or yeah. especially if there's no leftovers. So I've actually subscribed to this meal prep service where they send me ready-made meals about three times a week. Yeah. And while I'm not the person who likes to pay for that kind of stuff, I'm usually quite cheap. I realized that that was the best thing I could do to guarantee me having a healthy dinner in the evenings. Because even though I feel tempted to kind of go down below me, there's a pizzeria and next to it, it's a oh, no. <laughs> hamburger joint. <laughs> so I'm in the worst, worst context in that scenario. Even though I feel tempted, I can just go to my you know fridge and I can have this quite tasty meal uh, already prepared. So that's one way as well for me. That's worked really well for me to eat healthy <laughs> when I really need to as well. Wow. That's really great. Let's summarize again, because there's so many moving parts here. You know, I had started by saying that there were three kinds of things. There was the weakening your reflexive behaviors. There was the strengthening of your deliberate ones. And let's just stop there for a second. And for those things, there were internal mechanisms and external mechanisms that we could do. And then you sort of walked us through what makes up a habit. Go ahead. Why don't you walk us through it? 
Yeah, I was going to say, we can actually tie this together quite well, I think. So we started with the idea that the reason why it's hard to do what we do is because we are, for lack of a better term, kind of chimpanzees in a human world where we're stuck in this context that we're not really evolved to live in. And so there's this little bit of this challenge for us to to set ourselves up for success, where sometimes the context might not be really helping us, it might be hurting us. And then we talked a little about what you mentioned here, where we can either focus on this more automatic self, this more, we also talked about as being the elephant and and seeing how we can maybe reduce that sway or power, or we can give a little more power to maybe the the more conscious self, the writer, the, the more deliberate version. And so, when we talked about building habits, then we said that, well, one thing we can do is, first of all, with the triggers, is that we can make it easier by, for the elephant, for the habit itself, we can make it easier by, you know, removing unnecessary triggers that's distracting us or f- leads us to the wrong paths that tempt us to, to do things that we shouldn't do. Yeah. And for, for the, the conscious, the writer, we can empower it by, Giving us more tools regarding understanding our internal states, our negative maybe emotions, and and having a better understanding of how to deal with these waves, and understanding that we can actually surf the wave. We don't have to be slaves, and we can actually uh, navigate the waves. And then we talked about the idea that the second part being doing the behavior and having the ability to do it. We can again think about how we can make it for the the more automatic thing, automatic self, the elephant that. What if we set up our environments that kind of follows paths to where we really only can do what we want to do? Mm-hmm. Where we, again, if we could, we remove that McDonald's or we get the gym that's closer to us, or at least we find ways where we can bring the things we want to do closer to us and the things we don't want to do further away. Yeah. And then we also mentioned that we can also help this more conscious self um, when deciding on what behaviors to do is to maybe set a little bit easier goals, like put the goals in a sphere where the focus is on the action, the habit rather than the outcome and reducing the difficulty of doing that action. So it's a little bit rethinking the mindset, what's important. And so that we're focusing on really repetitions over instant success and instant, you know, weight loss. Right. So then we got to the idea of, you know, the rewarding aspect to it. We, we talked about, in general, that it's very important that we find some form of positive experience. And when we can't find a way to make the behavior itself rewarding, which we can sometimes, uh, we can at least find it rewarding in doing it. And we're feeling that it's it makes us kind of, we haven't talked about identity, but we can think about it as it's it gives evidence for the person we want to be. Yeah, And that can feel really good to really feel that we're uh, showing evidence of being our best selves. Or even just being a person who's in control of our behavior. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great, great point. And, and to tie it all together, we talked about, I guess, these two strategies for tying ourselves to the mast and, <laughs> and helping us avoid uh, failure. So to start with a failure, because that's where we started, was with if-then plans, that we can become more curious of what actually trips us up. What are these things that makes us uh, succumb to the things we don't want to do? And find a way to plan in advance for how to deal with them. So if this happened, then I'll do this. And whenever we fall again, we learn from that failure or perceived failure, and we come up with a strategy for how to navigate it next time. And then we can also tie ourselves to the mask <laughs> in some form of metaphorical way in terms of we can um, find commitment devices that adds a cost to doing 
the undesired thing. Hmm. And so that could be a cost in terms of time. It can be cost in terms of kind of social humiliation. (laughs) In terms of if I tell my whole team that I only eat salad for lunch, and then we all as a team go for lunch, and I eat a burger, everyone will look at me and say, wait a second, Sam. Yes. you're lying before like and then that doesn't feel good so i don't want to i want to avoid that cost of feeling like i'm lying to my team members or, or feeling in a like losing status towards them um so i think that ties together pretty well we've covered actually a lot of ground i'm quite impressed with both of us we've we've navigated a lot of aspects to habit formation and and behavior change so it's been fun and i imagine that that's because you've got a lot of practice at, at being able to teach people about this i know that um and we're running out of time here, but I wanted to leave a little time to, for you to be able to talk about this program that you have organized with some other people that you're working with. Tell us just a little bit about that, and, and we'll put some information in the show notes so people can find out more. I'm in the middle of doing it, and I'll say that it is really powerful, and and it's less about sort of the the science behind it, and it's more about learning enough about it so that you know what you're doing, but coming up with a process that you can follow for yourself or for uh, other people that you're trying to help figure out the steps to help stop things that you don't want to do and start things that you do want to do. Anyway, please tell us about your program. Yeah. So it's called Habit Coach Professionals is the platform. And I've co-founded together with a wonderful person called Aaron Leveroni, who's a fitness professional and we both had this sense that wouldn't it be nice in the world if people who wanted to change themselves or coach others really knew the tools for how to best do that. Right. And we felt there was such a shame that a lot of people who are coaches, for example, they learn about the physiology if they're fitness coach, they learn about the nutrition aspects if they're nutritionists, but they rarely know, learn about how to get people to not only perform in the gym, but get back to the gym <laughs> and build that gym habit or yeah. not only knowing what to eat, but how to make that a habit. So we have really done our best to make this a fun experience where it's a 10 week experience of, uh, as, as you mentioned, Joe, first learning a little bit of the theory. So you have a little bit of a way of navigating this world uh, of, of how to think about the brain and how we make decisions and some of the things we've spoken about today. And then focusing a lot about process and tools for change. So how can we find ways to make it a, a process that's just easy to follow and easy to navigate um, when we're trying to change things in our life or in the life of other people. And the core is set up in a way where the goal is to, <laughs> to build habits along the way as a participant as well. You will get these small nuggets of about 10, 15 minutes uh, interactive lessons every day uh, during the week. And so I don't know, I'm curious to hear, Joe, if you've noticed that you build a habit of, of taking those small nuggets and how that's been, uh, but that's certainly goal, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, let me just admit to you that at the same exact moment in time, I am frustrated by how much work there is and frustrated that there's not more work because I, I'm so interested in learning more about this but of course, I'm a busy person. Everyone's a busy person. And so I, I appreciate that you guys are walking a tightrope of, you could give us a, a PhD level and volume of material, but then nobody would get through it, you know, or you could just tell us to eat less and move more. And that would be true and useless. So you're trying to figure out how much can you tell us 
that will actually be able to learn by way of doing the lessons, and it'll be enough so that we'll we'll have some basic capability and skill at being able to do this for ourselves and for other people. But that'll give us, that'll make us feel capable, and we'll keep looking into this. We'll keep trying to get smarter about it, and we won't quit. So I think that you guys are doing a great job. Uh, and I love the tools that you put together, these forums that uh, walk people through the setup of how to do that right, including how to figure out what's not going right, you know, why didn't that work, what was always true but didn't come out early enough, and now, now because of failures, people are willing to share more information, and now you've got to deal with that. So it really has been great so far, and, and when I'm not done, so there's more for me to learn. Yeah, and uh, we've been very happy to see that so far. We have a 94% completion rate. That's amazing. Uh, in terms of, uh, we looked at before when we started this, and we see, saw that many courses, like on Coursera, for example, I think the average is about 3 to 5% of people who start it finish it. Yes. And we felt that that was the opposite of what we wanted, and we only wanted to create something if people actually did it and actually got to use the tools that we were trying to, to give them. And so that's been really wonderful so far. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously really happy to have you in the course and that you enjoyed it so far. And if you're interested, um, you certainly can check it out and uh, reach out if you have any questions, of course, as well. Uh, me and Aaron are happy to answer any questions, but there's obviously some information as well on the website. So Excellent. Yeah, so we'll put the links to all of that in the show notes. I appreciate you taking some time to share your knowledge and your wisdom about habits with me and, and with the audience. Appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. And if I can give you your audience kind of a last thought is really thinking about this idea what we've spoken about today. So we've been speaking about how to change our lives. And what I think we should really not forget is that we're all on our own interesting journey. And so Whatever I've told you so far, and whatever you've heard on the podcast before, I guess, is there's always going to be this aspect of integrating it into your own life. And one of the things we tend to do is being very harsh on ourselves and having these, I have dealt with a lot of perfectionism and trying to be perfect in many ways. And I see it all the time that people are having these oftentimes personal battles with themselves of like the person they want to be and so on. Yeah. And so I would say, the best thing you can do if you want to build good habits is to follow some of the advice that you've taken today. See it as a kind of an experiment in how you apply it into your own life. And during that journey, most importantly, be kind to yourself. Be okay with things not going exactly as planned because that's part of life, right? Yeah. And see it as a sometimes hard lessons to learn, but sometimes really interesting and fascinating things. Because we talked in the beginning, what, what got me hooked into behavioral science was this idea that we saw the world with more nuance. And I think that's such a fascinating thing with working on ourselves is that we start to see ourselves with a little more introspective quality. We have a little more self-awareness and we can better relate to other people. We can better relate to understand how other people are navigating as well and help other people as well. So that's like a last thought there to, you know, See it as an experiment and be kind to yourself along the way. All right. And understanding how hard this is, but that it's possible, I think gives you permission to be kind to yourself, be understanding, be patient, stick with it, 
getting better is much more important than being perfect. And then that all sets you up for then being understanding and kind to other people too, because now you know what they're going through. All right. Well, Samuel, thank you again. I appreciate that. You have a good day. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening into my discussion with Samuel Salzer about behavior change and how to get the skills needed to break unhelpful habits and to assert better control over our behavior through good habit building. And thanks to Sam for taking some time to share his deep knowledge in this important area. You can find more information about Sam and his company, Habit Coaching Professionals, in the show notes. While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitness practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.